Job 40. Well, here we are at the end of the book of Job. I was looking back in my notes this week. This series began December 16th of 2012. So December 16th of last year is when I began my book sermon in Job. The series has spanned 25 messages covering the 42 chapters of the book. And as we think about the book of Job, it has one overarching point. I've done the best I can, uh, perhaps better, perhaps not better, but I've done as well as I can at, at keeping us from losing the forest for the trees throughout the series. The one point of Job that we think about throughout the, the spans of everything that Job has talked about and his friends have talked about, the true focus of the book, which is that we must recognize God to be higher, God to be greater, and that in the midst of difficulties, it is both our privilege and our responsibility to justify God. Now, I never would have expected, uh, things happen among people, but I never quite would have expected uh, the applicability of the series to be what it was over these past many months for our church. We've had one in the church who's lost an eye in this time. We've had one in the church who has been diagnosed with a form of epilepsy in this time. We've had uh, people in the church who have uh, needed jobs and not been able to find work. We've had so many different difficulties and trials throughout the course of this series. And yet, those of us who haven't had these particular trials and difficulties we know that life being what it is, they are probably to come, are they not? I trust that this series has granted each of us a new or at least a renewed perspective regarding the trials that come into our lives. We will most likely not revisit the book of Job again, particularly in a systematic format, preaching through the book for some years to come. I've got a lot of other books to cover. Probably won't be back in Job for some time. But the lessons that we have learned in this book will be needed all the time for the rest of our lives. Our outline this morning, if you have an outline before you or if you're taking notes this morning, will mainly focus on Job 42. We read Job 42 in our scripture reading this morning. That will be the main focus of our outline. However, last week we finished in Job chapter 40 verse 5. And so we still have Job 40 verse 6 through Job 41 34. To cover. And as we left Job last time in Job 40, he was saying these, these words, look in verse 4, I am vile. What shall I answer thee? I will lay my hand upon my mouth. Just like we see many hundreds of years later in the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, Job is basically saying, woe is me, I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He says, I'm just going to put my hand upon my mouth, I'm just going to stop talking. I've got nothing more to say. I'm vile. You are justified. But God is not finished yet. Because He has not fully received the response He wants from Job quite yet. You know, one of the important things that we distinguish when we talk about salvation or when we talk about discipleship or the, the Christian life we distinguish the difference between agreement with God's Word and alignment with God's Word. 
Just because a person agrees with God's word, this does not mean that he is willing to align himself with God's word. Just because a man agrees with God's word does not mean he's willing to repent, to humble himself before God, and to personally align himself. But you know, at the end of the day, agreement really doesn't mean a whole lot. It's kind of worthless and empty at the end of the day. And let me illustrate. Imagine my wife, it's kind of a cloudy day today, so it's not a very good day for this illustration, but let's just pretend like it's not a cloudy day today. And my wife and I were to walk out the doors of this church today and we were to look up in the sky and my wife were to say, what beautiful blue, what a beautiful blue sky there is out there today. And I look up and I say, no, the sky is green. She looks at me, she says, the sky is blue. I say, no, the sky is green. Well, now we have a disagreement. So she brings everyone in the church and we all go outside and my wife says, what color is the sky? And everyone says, the sky is blue. And I say, no, 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 the sky's green. I disagree. The fact that I disagree does not change the fact that the sky is blue. The fact that I refuse to call the sky blue does not change the fact that the sky is blue. Now, it may mean I need to get my eyes checked, but regardless, it doesn't change the fact that the sky is blue. And you know, at the end of the day, the same goes for the truth of God's Word. Truth is truth whether a man agrees with it or not. Whether they say the Bible is true or the Bible is false, it doesn't change the fact that the Bible is true. Whether they say there is a God or there isn't a God, it doesn't change the fact that there is indeed a God. Truth is truth, whether we agree with it or not. But you know, agreement is not enough, is it? Now imagine my wife and I are leaving here today and we're, we're driving down the road and we, we hit 25. And I put my left turn signal on. And my wife sees that and she says, where are we going? And I say, well, we're going home. And she says, but you need to turn right to go home. I say, I agree with you. And I turn left. And she says, okay, well, we needed to turn right to go home. You turn left. Where are we going? I say, we're going home. But home is behind us. I say, I agree. And we keep going south. We're in Iowa. My, my, my wife says, okay, where are we going? I say, we're going home. She says, home is in Minnesota. I say, I agree. Well, where are we going? We're going home. Well, the fact that I agree with her where home is doesn't mean a thing if I don't act on it. If my agreement, if I don't align myself with the truth that home is in Minnesota and in Buffalo and it's a right turn out of here, not a left turn, if I don't align myself with those truths, then agreeing with those truths does no difference, makes no difference. It does me no good. Such as with God's word as well. Even if we acknowledge that God's Word is true, it makes no difference unless we align ourselves with that truth. God's Word is true. I agree. But if I go in the opposite direction than God's Word, it's not doing me any good. Right? I can say I agree that salvation is by grace through faith in the name of Jesus Christ. But if I don't place my faith in the name of Jesus Christ to be saved, me knowing that information does me no good. I can say God is Creator, God is Savior, God is King, therefore He is worthy of my complete love and my complete devotion, but if I don't give Him my complete love and my complete devotion, then the fact that I know God is Creator and Savior and King is doing me no good. Agreement is not enough. We must align. And as we look in Job 40, Job has agreed with God. God, you're right. But as we continue to see what God is doing here, it seems as though Job has not fully aligned himself with what God has been saying. 
God is looking for Job to repent and completely align himself with God's Word. So, God will ask Job a question today, and we're going to look at that question, and then he's going to use two examples, and we're going to look at those examples. And that will be, for lack of a better term, our introduction. And then we're going to jump into our outline this morning and see a, a, a couple of points. I'm going to try to, to hasten on. The sermon is a bit longer on paper than a normal one is, so we'll see how this goes this morning. Let's just jump right in. The question God asks is in verse 8. Look at it with me. Job 40, verse 8. Wilt thou also disannul my judgment? Wilt thou condemn me that thou mayest be righteous? Are you more righteous than I am, Job? Are you going to justify your own self-righteousness at the expense of my righteousness? Are you going to elevate yourself to being correct in all things at the expense of me? Are you going to do that, Job? We visited this question back in Job 35. You remember the, the combined problem that Job and his three companions had is the lie he spake was that they were mired in self-justification and self-righteousness. Now, Job had not taken it as far as his companions had, but they all had this same precondition, this same problem, that they had this self-righteous, self-justifying Outlook And God says, are you going to justify yourself at the expense of my righteousness? And certainly the answer is no. Let's see, as, he, as God continues, God asks him in verse 9, Hast thou an arm like God? Or canst thou thunder with a voice like Him? Are you really righteous, Job? Do you have my power? Do you have my strength? And then He challenges Job in verses 10-14. through 14. Deck thyself now with majesty and excellence, and array thyself with glory and beauty. Cast abroad the rage of thy wrath, and behold everyone that is proud and abase him. Look on everyone that is proud and bring him low, and tread down the wicked in their place. Hide them in the dust together, and bind their faces in secret. Then, he says, will I also confess unto thee that thine own right hand can save thee. What he's saying is this, Job, find every proud man and abase him. Strengthen men with your power. Clothe yourself in majesty. Job, the day you can do that, I will admit that you have your own righteousness. I will admit that you are indeed self-righteous. But until the day there is only one that is self-righteous, and that is God. There is only one who is righteous in and of himself, and that is God. Job is starting to get the point here. Beginning in verse 15, God uses two examples to show His majesty. And He begins with an animal He calls behemoth. The description of this animal is unlike anything that you would find today. Anything you would find at a zoo or anything of the sort. He describes in verse 15 behemoth as having being an animal that eats grass like oxen. In verse 16... He says that his strength is in his loins, that he has very, very strong legs. In verse 17, he says he has a tail like a cedar. These would have been the cedars, most likely the cedars of Lebanon. If you've ever seen any of those things, they are massive trees. Huge tail, strong legs, eats grass. Verse 18 says that his bones are as strong pieces of brass like bars of iron. Extremely strong skeletal structure, and in verse 23 it says that he drinks up a river and hasteth not. He trusts that he can draw up Jordan into his mouth. 
thing is big and it drinks a lot of water. As we think about this, very many scholars have said, well, what is this animal? They look around in the animal kingdom and they don't see him, but if they go to a museum, they find something that sounds very similar to Behemoth. It's one of these things. Huge tail, strong skeletal stru structure, could probably drink a great amount of water. Most scholars today, biblical scholars, believe that Behemoth was the Brachiosaurus. Now, this should not surprise us. We know that the earth was created in six literal days, approximately 6,000 years ago. If everything was created, as God's Word declares, in those six literal days, 6,000 years ago, that means that dinosaurs were created at the same time as man. Far from the pseudoscience of today's pseudo-intellectuals, who would say that the earth is millions of years old and that these dinosaurs evolved over millions of years and died out millions of years before mankind came upon the picture, the Bible says something very different. The Bible tells us that all things were created in six days, and so it should not surprise us that we would see accounts in God's Word of dinosaurs, oftentimes called dragons. We'll talk about that a little more in a minute in the Scriptures. It should not surprise us that we would see accounts of dinosaurs, particularly as God is displaying His majesty through creation. You say, well, Pastor, doesn't it work out that you can add millions of years to the Bible? Couldn't you just say that God used evolution? Well, no, it doesn't work. Such assertions fall under the weight of their own claims. You see, if evolution is true, even if God used evolution, that means that death came before man. Right? Things had to die because evolution is death building upon death to create life. doesn't even make sense. But uh, evolution demands death. If things died and killed each other before man, that means that things died and killed each other before man's sin. And if there was death before sin, that means that Jesus Christ's sacrifice can't help us with our own need for life. It can't help us with a resurrection. It can't help us with eternal life because death came before sin, which means sin didn't usher death into the world, which means everything that our Bible says is a lie. If evolution is true, then this book is a lie. They do not and cannot go hand in hand. Now, there's a lot more to this evolution creation debate. We're not there today. Except that we see a description of an animal that we only find in a museum. And many believe that Brachiosaurus is that animal. Verse 19, that behemoth is the chief of the ways of God, the very pinnacle of God's creative power and glory. God says, you want to become, you want to prove to me that you're self-righteous, go create one of those. Go ahead, create one of those. God then describes the second animal in chapter 41. In, I'm not going to be able to read it all this morning, but in verse 7, he says that this animal has skin like iron, like barbed iron. He'll go on to say in verse 16 that his, the scales of this animal are so tight that air cannot even pass between them. So this animal has scales like iron. Armor. In verses 18 through 21, God describes this animal as having eyes that glow, that breathes and sneezes fire, whose nostrils smoke. In verses 25 through 30, he describes this animal as being impervious to spear, impervious to arrow, 
He sees iron as nothing more than straw and brass as rotten wood for his strength. In other words, his jaws can take iron and brass and just snap it like it was straw. Incredible power in this animal. He's a swimming creature, according to verses 31 through 34. He makes the deep boil like a pot, the Scriptures say. And he is fearless. And God says he is of tremendous work. Have you ever seen something walking around or have you ever been fishing and pulled something up that sounds like that? You haven't. But you know, if you go into culture, you might find something kind of like it. One of these. The Scriptures call this Leviathan. We oftentimes call it a dragon. You say, Pastor, are you telling me that dragons exist? No, not necessarily. I'm telling you that Leviathan exists. And that Leviathan sounds an awful lot like what myths throughout the world call dragon. Let me show you another clip here. This is a map of the world. And in it you have various places labeled. These are all the places that have some cultural myth or story about a dragon. Like the stories of a global flood that transcend every culture, dragons have been spoken of all over the world. In independent cultures. As a matter of fact, whales, if you ever look at the flag for whales, the dragon. We all know of the Chinese and their affinity for dragons. They would use dragons in their parades and in their cultural observances. They even have murals of dragon trainers, of men who would train and raise dragons from the past. Am I telling you that there are definitively, there were definitively dragons? Certainly not as we would necessarily see them today, but we see something called Leviathan. And the Bible says that he breathed fire. And the Bible says that he had scales like iron. And the Bible says that he swam. He didn't necessarily fly. It didn't say anything about him flying. But a lot of the dragons in, in mythology didn't have wings anyway. But whatever it is we're seeing here, it's not necessarily something that we would have today. But it seems like a dragon. Now, this would make sense. Everything was created in six literal days, approximately 6,000 years ago. Dinosaurs were created at the same time as man was. That means that man would have been living in some element of coexistence with dinosaurs. Would it be too far-fetched for us to believe that at the time of Abraham and Job, they would still be around? I don't think it should be. And so these things shouldn't throw us off. And certainly, wherever the Word of God confuses us, we know that if there's a problem, it's not with the Word of God, it's with our understanding of the Word of God. And so we'll take it for what it is. Either way, what Jesus or what, what God is telling to Job here is look, these things are magnificent wonders of my creation. And he's trying to prove a point to Job. The descriptions were not meant to be an end in of themselves. They were meant to manifest God's greatness to Job. And Job answers in chapter 42. And this answer is what we're going to study for the rest of our time. If you um, 
have your outline. This is where the outline will pick up this morning. We're going to look at two questions that each of us ought to ask ourselves regarding our response to the revealed truth of God. And after we ask those two questions, we're going to observe one reality. And this reality is that our response, or God's response to us depends on our response to God. We'll look at that after we ask the two questions. The first question I'd like to ask as we look at Job 42 verses 1 through 3 is this. Do you respond to God with humility or pride? Do you respond to God with humility or pride? Look at me in verses 1 through 3. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that thou canst do everything and that no thought can be withholden from thee. Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered that I understand not things too wonderful for me which I knew not. The book of James describes the Word of God like a mirror. I meant to bring a mirror this morning. I did not. But James says this in verses 22-25. through 25, But be ye doers of the Word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the Word and not a doer, he is likened to a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. James describes the Word of God as if it were a mirror. When I look into a mirror, yesterday I was outside working a little bit. When I came in and I looked into a mirror, we see something. We see a reflection. As James describes the Word of God, it's like a mirror that when we look into the Word of God, we see God for who He is. We see God's omnipotence. We see God's sovereignty. We see God's holiness. We see God's love. We see all of these things. And when we see God for who He is, the Bible tells us that we see ourselves for who we are. The Word of God reveals our true nature to us. A nature of weakness. A nature of sinfulness a nature of arrogance, a nature of self-righteousness, a nature of self-reliance, a nature of rebellion, among other things. And as James teaches it, we have one of two responses that we can make when we look into the mirror of God's Word. We can behold ourselves and go our way and straightway forget what manner of man we are, or we can look into the Word of God, remain see who we are in light of who God is, not forget, but rather align ourselves with it. So if I were to go to a mirror, and I were to, I, I was changing the oil, and I go and I find oil smudges all over my face, well, I can do one of two things. I can behold the smudges on my face and say, oh well, and go my way and just forget about it. Or I can recognize that I've got smudges on my face and clean them off. The Bible says the same thing about the Word of God. When God, when God's character and God's nature becomes real to us, we can do one of two things. We can see ourselves for who we are and say, oh well, and keep doing what we're doing, keep being who we are, self-righteous, self-reliant, sinful, rebellious, or we can see ourselves for who we are and start cleaning those smudges off. Start taking the Word of God and hiding it in our hearts and applying it to our hearts so that we will become what God wants us to become. And to do this, to hear the Word of God or to read the Word of God and to submit ourselves to the Word of God takes something special. It takes humility. 
And that's what Job, that's how Job responds to God here in verses 1 through 3. With humility. He tells God, you can do everything. No thought is withheld from you. And then he says, I have spoken in ignorance. I have spoken in regard to things that I do not understand. Things which are far, far above me. And God, I am wrong. He humbles himself before the hand of God. You know, today's culture sees an admission such as that as weakness. No real man would ever admit that he's wrong. No self-respecting woman would admit defeat. But God sees it as the exact opposite. James tells us that the man who humbles himself before God will be blessed in all of his deeds, as we just read. He will go on to say in James 4, verse 10, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He shall lift you up. This is something that culture cannot understand. We're memorizing 1 Corinthians 1, 26-29, that the wisdom of the world is very different from the wisdom of God, and that God has made foolishness the wisdom of the world. And this is a wisdom of God. This is a pearl of God's wisdom. That God honors humility and God loathes pride. Far from being a man or a woman who ever refuses to admit that they're wrong, God honors the man or the woman or the child who is willing to say, you know what? I'm wrong. God, I'm wrong. You're right. And I'm going to align myself with you. Now, I know there is pride in this room today. And I know that because I know my own heart. But Proverbs 8.13 tells us the fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride, and arrogancy, and the evil way, and the froward mouth. Do I hate? God hates pride. And we should hate pride as well. Pride keeps us from the humility that would give us honor before God. Pride withholds from us the simple things that would ensure peace among one another as we talked about in Sunday school this morning. Pride leads to contention. Pride begins argument. Pride begins fights. Pride begins wars. Does it not? And every time you hear the Word of God and ignore it, pride has just kept you from the blessing of God upon the righteous. So the question this morning is this. How do you respond to God? you respond with humility or in pride? Second question this morning, verses 4-6. through six, Do you respond to God with repentance or with justification? With repentance or with justification? Job doesn't just lower himself in his own eyes. Job implores God to hear him. Job prepares himself to talk to God in a different way. Do you remember back some chapters earlier Job said, if only God were here, I am calling upon Job to, I'm calling upon God to answer me. God, answer me, because I know if you answer me, then I'll be justified. Well, Job prepares himself to call upon God in a very different way this time. Earlier in the book of Job, he was demanding answers from God. God, I demand answers, I demand justice. Earlier in the book, he was demanding reparations from God. I demand to be I demand reparations for my injuries. Now he says, no more demands, God. I just want one thing. And look what he says in verses 4-6. through six. Here I beseech thee and I will speak. I will demand of thee. I will declare thou unto me. I have heard of thee by hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. Wherefore I abhor myself 
and repent in dust and ashes. It's not a very feel-good message this morning, is it? Job says, I abhor myself. I repent in dust and ashes. Do you respond with repentance or with justification? The biblical definition of repentance is somewhat different from the modern definition of the word. Within the context, the Hebrew word literally means to be sorry, to regret, and sometimes it means to confront as in to feel sorry for another, to show another pity. But the biblical word does not demand the concept of sorrow for wrongdoing. The biblical idea of repentance does not always demand sorrow for wrongdoing. Biblical repentance carries the idea of a change of mind, a turning from one thing to something else, and particularly a change of mind that brings about a change of action. It can include sorrow for wrongdoing. It can also include sorrow without any implication of wrongdoing attached. And this is why when we read in the Scriptures that God repented, God repented of the evil that He was going to do, God isn't admitting He's doing something wrong. He's not feeling sorrow for some wrongdoing that He is doing, but rather He divinely changed His mind, His attitude, or His disposition toward a person in pity, in sorrow. And so God can repent, but God does not do wrong. So repentance does not always have the idea of sorrow over wrongdoing. God often felt sorrow, but not for wrong. Rather, it was merciful sorrow. And so God repented. God changed His mind. We are called oftentimes in the Scriptures to repent. To repent unto salvation. To repent unto sanctification. To change our minds. To align ourselves with God. Here, Job sees his wrong and he declares two things. He says, I abhor myself. He rejects his former arrogance. He rejects his former thinking, his former disposition. And then he says that I repent in dust and ashes. He declares that he has had a change of mind. That the very fabric of his understanding has altered to the extent that he now justifies God rather than himself. His thought process before was, I am innocent and I need to justify myself. And you know he was innocent. But he says, my thinking has changed. I no longer am interested in justifying myself. God, I recognize that whether I'm justified or not, the fact of the matter is you are worthy of justification. You are righteous and I'm going to justify you. Job repent. Repentance, as the Bible describes it, is a regular part of every Christian's life. Our Christian walk demands repentance. A purposeful humbling of ourselves before the Word of God when we find ourselves out of alignment. A true turning from those sins which we have in our lives as God, through His Word and through His Holy Spirit, makes them known to us and convicts us of them. This Christian life is not a one-time thing. It's not saved and done. It is a constant process of living in alignment to God. Of seeing when we drift of repenting of those sins, of realigning ourselves with God. And my question to you this morning is how do you respond? When God convicts your heart, when you have something in your life where you've been justifying yourself or have been acting self-righteously or in rebellion or in pride or contention or bitterness or whatever the case may be, do you respond with humility or with pride? 
Do you respond with repentance or with justification? And as we finish our time in Job, one last point this morning. It's a statement based upon these two questions. The statement is this in verses 7 through 17. How you respond to God dictates how God will respond to you. We know how Job responded to God. We just saw it. He humbled himself. He repented of his false thinking. He aligned himself with God and with God's Word. The rest of the chapter presents the results of Job's humility. God first rebukes Job's three companions, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And He rebukes them for misrepresenting the character and the Word of God in their advice and in their imploring to Job. We studied that for weeks. Notice God does not rebuke the words of Elihu. God speaks specifically to Eliphaz, who was the oldest of the three, and says, My wrath is kindled against thee and against thy two friends. So God's wrath was kindled against these three men, but not against Elihu. And this is why we know, as we look at Elihu's teaching, that Elihu's teaching was correct. Because God had no bone to pick with Elihu. But God tells these other three men, you are wrong. We know that Job's words, while misguided, had never misrepresented God either. So God demands demand that these three men make sacrifices to atone for their sin, as was the character of the age, the dispensation in which they were. And he, and he says to these men, go to Job, make a sacrifice to God before him, and ask him to pray for you. Lest, he says in verse 8, I deal with you after your folly, in that ye have not spoken of me the thing which is right, like my servant Job. God says, you deserve great chastisement for the way you've spoken of me, but I'm gonna, I'm willing to show you mercy if you do these things. Sacrifice, make sacrifices unto me and ask Job to pray for you. So they obeyed the Lord's command. And verse 9 tells us that Job prayed for them and the Lord accepted Job. Now verses 10 through 17 describe the event following this ordeal. In verse 10, the Bible says God turned the captivity of Job 180 so that he had two times what he had before. Everything that God had blessed Job with previously, God gave him twice as much with the exception of children. His brethren accepted him again as a man of honor and respect. He was once again one of the greatest men of the East. He was a man that had dignity and honor. People sought to him. People gave him gifts in, in exchange for his wisdom and his fellowship and his company. The Scriptures tell us that God again gave Job ten children. And his three daughters, named Jemima, a word that means dove, named Kedzia, uh, Cassia, which is a type of Middle Eastern flower, and then Karen Hapuk, which means a horn of paint, literally that which would have uh, been the spectrum of colors, were the most beautiful women in the land. And so the Scriptures tell us that Job died being old, and full of days. The entire book of Job makes it clear that God does not have to do this, does He? God did not have to bless Job again. We've seen it throughout the entire book. God is justified. God did not have any obligation to give back to Job that which Job had lost. 
God has the right to do whatever He will, and we know from the teachings of Jesus Christ and from the example of men like Peter and Paul and the martyrs throughout history that a humble heart will not ensure a man of health, happiness, and prosperity in this life. There are men out there who would preach that if you will do what God tells you to do, that you will have wealth and you will have health and you will have prosperity. Well, tell that to men like Paul. To men like Job. Tell that to the martyrs who were thrown to the lions in the Roman Colosseum. Tell them to the Christians right now in Egypt and in Pakistan and in those Muslim nations who are being killed and whose families are being killed and whose communities are being burned simply because they claim the name of Christ. Tell them that a pure heart will lead to prosperity and health and wealth. See, God does not promise that to us in this life. But the Bible does make one thing very clear. The man who responds properly to God is a man who will, without fail, be rewarded by God for his response to God. He is a man who will, without fail, be rewarded. Jesus Christ taught this in Matthew chapter 5, verses 3-12. through Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Jesus Christ says it is a blessed thing to be right with God. It is a blessed thing to be the meek man. It is a blessed thing to be the man that hungers and thirsts after righteousness. It is a blessed thing for the man who is persecuted for the name of the Gospel, for the name of righteousness, because great is your reward in your bank account? No. Great is your reward in your big house? No. Great is your reward in heaven. We've learned many things from the book of Job. We've learned to justify God in the midst of our suffering. We've learned the nature of God. The nature of understanding God. The limits of our understanding of God. Our responsibility to understand Him and our responsibility to the limits of our understanding. We've learned of our own nature, of our sin nature, of our human tendencies towards judgmentalism, towards self-righteousness, towards self-justification. Yet, if the end of Job will teach us anything more, it is that there is indeed a reward unto the man who would humble himself before the Word of God. And so the question that I have for you this morning is this. How do you respond to the Word of God? Are there things in God's Word that have been convicting your heart? Sins that you just have refused to let go of? Bitterness. Unforgiveness. Selfishness. Pride. Slothfulness. Are there movies on your shelves, books on your shelves, magazines on your shelves that are not right? Places you go, things you say, things you wear, things you do 
You know what you're expected to do. You've read the Word of God. You know what the Word of God says. But you haven't responded properly. But this contains, through humility and repentance, you too can respond properly to the Word of God. You say, but I don't think I can give up those things. I just don't think I can do it. I love those things too much. And they're too ingrained into me. But you see, the man who responds properly to the Word of God, to the will of God, to the expectations of God, is not a man who suffers loss. The Scriptures tell us he's a man who is blessed. That great is your reward, not in the 50, 60 years of this life perhaps, but in the eternity that is the life to come. And as we do so, we receive those blessings. The blessings of the meat. The blessings of the foreign spirit. How do you respond to God?